The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum, welcome to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live and my name is Safar Iqbal. Today is 29th of March, 22nd of Rajab according to Apple uh, and we do have a packed show for you today, inshallah. In a minute we're going to talk about anti-hate, uh, anti-Muslim hate crime uh, soaring in the UK. We're going to talk about mosque security and we ask the question, are the masajids taking it seriously? And from and seven o'clock, inshallah, we'll talk about the good times in Pakistan. Oil has been struck in Pakistan, as according to some headlines. And finally, we'll talk about the Golan Heights. America has unilaterally decided to recognise the Golan Heights. What does that mean on the ground? Welcome, inshallah, to our show. Uh, we're going to have a, a packed show, as I said earlier on. Uh, we're going to have, uh, inshallah, have Naz Shah uh, uh, with us today to talk about the rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes. So, uh, according to the headlines uh, in The Guardian, uh, anti-Muslim hate crime has soared by a staggering 593% in a week uh, after the white terrorist uh, uh, incident in New Zealand. So we're going to talk to Nasha, we're going to talk about uh, maybe why that was a factor and, and whether there's a, a groundswell of support, hidden and unhidden, perhaps among some of the powerful, uh, for this kind of uh, behaviour and attitude, inshallah. We'll talk to Nasha in a minute. Uh, we will also have uh, Sarah al Faithy, uh, who represents uh, MEND, uh, and she can talk about uh, how the group has highlighted the rise uh, and in anti-Muslim hate uh, over the years. Also today, inshallah, we're, we're pleased to have uh, a veteran campaigner, inshallah, Zahid Khan. Uh, he's been campaigning uh, for awareness of Islam through many channels, inshallah, physically, you know, using placards and stuff and using social media for many, many years. I think close to 30 years. Assalamu alaikum, Zayed. It's been an honor for me to be here. Mashallah, inshallah. Uh, good, to, good to see you again. So he's going to give his opinions on the, the rise in Islamophobia and what he has personally been doing to bring awareness uh, to the wider community. Uh, and, uh, and also, inshallah, where we're going to talk, he's going to comment on the mosque security and, and other things uh, which he's been involved in in terms of mosque awareness days, etc. Inshallah, uh, a little bit later. Uh, we're going to move straight on to our first topic of discussion. So, again, quoting from the Guardian uh, edition uh, from the 22nd of March uh, 2019. Uh, so the number of anti-Muslim hate crimes reported across Britain increased by 593% in the week after the white supremacist killed uh, um, worshippers at two New Zealand mosques. An independent monitoring group uh, has said, the group Telmama said that almost all of the increased comprised incidents linked to the Christchurch, uh, Christchurch attacks two Fridays ago. Uh, and there have been have been more recorded hate crimes in the last seven days, that's according from last seven days from last Friday, uh, than in the week after the 217 
Islamist terror attack in, in Manchester. So it's a, a, a considerable rise. We're going to examine some of these figures and we're going to examine uh, whether uh, the actual facts on the ground stack up to the, those figures. Uh, and there, you might have also seen another uh, social media post indicating that in Leeds alone, and this is unverified actually, so we're not sure whether this is uh, actually from the newspaper or not, but according to, uh, according to one of the newspapers up in, uh, in Leeds, the rise has been closer to a thousand percent so in actual numbers itself uh, we're going to explore that in a little more, more detail what that means into actual numbers percentages can be a little bit misleading and they can present uh, a picture uh, to not just um, you know uh, raise the profile of the issue but also can be used as an instrument of fear uh, which is not something that we want to do inshallah uh, we have on the line uh, Sahar al Faifi, uh, and she represents men Assalamu alaikum Sahar and welcome to Inspire FM Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh thank you very much for having me today uh, for joining us today and, and perhaps if you can tell us a little bit about men and then what sort of work men has been doing uh, thank you very much. Uh, MEND stands for Muslim Engagement and Development, uh, for short MEND, and it's an organization that aims to tackle Islamophobia by engaging Muslims in two main fields, and these are politics and media. So for the Muslims to own their narrative in the media, and for Muslims to politically engage to tackle Islamophobia and make Islamophobia hopefully history in the UK. Right, so I, I guess from, from your point of view, uh, some of these incidents that have been reported uh, are no surprise to you? No, at all. Uh, not surprising uh, is expected. And I think uh, the Muslim community, especially women, are now more empowered to actually report these incidents. Uh, the far-right attacks, verbal and physically abuse, have been always on increase but the victim having been uh, empowered enough to report it and i think with the uh, horrifying uh, white supremacist terrorist attack that happened in new zealand uh, there is a sense of uh, responsibility uh, to tackle the issue um, what is also interesting that 80 percent of the victims of islamophobia are actually women and from that angle, you can call this type of Islamophobia a gendered Islamophobia because a lot of the perpetrators are happen to be white women who abuse uh, Muslim women of color who, who are also uh, most likely visibly Muslim, either by wearing the hijab or the niqab. Right, okay. So in, in terms of the, the actual statistics that have been been uh, shown. Um, do you have any research which kind of supports that or is it just headlines trying to sensationalize um, you know the, the incidents that happened? Uh, I can talk from men's perspective. Sure. We have a unit called Islamophobia Response Unit, IU, hmm. which, a unit, which is a unit that provides a legal advice for free and hmm. also support the victim. So the unit has been in existence for the last two years. And we have received in 18 months around 400 cases, mm. uh, mostly from women, but also some cases that 
touch upon the microaggression in the workplace or the insidious racism that it's not overt, it's not in your face. And this is something that needs to be highlighted. That a lot of people think Islamophobia is only the abuse in the streets, but in fact, it is far more sophisticated in that it can be institutional, it can be structural, and sometimes it's difficult to pin down unless the victims are supported not only by the community but also the legal uh, advisors and, and so on. Right, inshallah. Uh, okay. So, so in, t- in terms of uh, the recording of these, so the statistics you're presenting, I guess, are based on your experience and people have called yourself. Uh, what, what's what's the situation about official recording of anti-Muslim hate crimes um, and Islamophobia? Uh, is there a consistent approach across the country in, in recording these? Uh, I mean, the Home Office reported uh, an increase by 40%. Uh, London Metropolitan uh, Police reported an increase by 32%. Is the system uh, consistent? No, it's not. And the truth is that a lot of the police forces are actually not sufficiently being trained on recording Islamophobia. This is one part of the problem. Other part of the problem, uh, some of the victims think that the abuse that they face is trivial and is not worth reporting. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is some victims think that the police won't do anything. And in most cases, to be honest, even from my experience, the police can't do much to be honest but i still encourage the victims especially women to record these incidents at least for the sake of statistics at least to show the scale of the problem in order to solve it but also to get the uh, political uh, will to tackle the issue supported by numbers through reporting Okay, so now, and I guess there, there's a distinction to be made between Islamophobia, Islamophobic incidents where there is, a, uh, I guess, uh, abuse could be included as part of that, but anti-Muslim hate crime uh, would be different, would it not? Uh, I think Islamophobia encapsulates everything, right. including, including the anti-Muslim hatred. Uh, what anti-Muslim hatred doesn't include is actually the institutional uh, racism and the structural um, Islamophobia. Uh, when you say Islamophobia, you are not only covering the abuse, but also you're highlighting the multi-million pound uh, Islamophobia industry out there. We're talking about media outlets that uh, publish negative headlines every here and then demonizing Muslims for the main reason that they make in money. They like to publish things that the public like to read uh, and, and, and hear. So the issue is far more um, sophisticated and that's why I don't really agree with the term anti-Muslim hatred as it doesn't cover the whole issue. Rather Islamophobia it does and also it, it, it refers to the irrational, exaggerated fear of Muslim that leads not only to abuse but also to exclude the, to the exclusion of Muslims from the public life, which is another form of institutional Islamophobia. All right, okay. Jazakallah, uh, Sahar, do you mind staying on a little bit? Because I've got Naz Shah on the line. I want to bring her uh, online to talk about her views. Uh, so, Naz, Salaam alaikum. Welcome to Inspire FM. Uh, well, Salaam. Uh, absolute pleasure to be with you. Thank Thank you. you. 
Thank you very much indeed. So just, just to put a little bit of a context, we talked about the headline last Friday from The Guardian, to, uh, which indicates that a rise in anti-Muslim hate crime over the week since, um, since the Christchurch shooting um, has gone up by 593%. So I just wanted your view on, on whether that was reflective and what, if you have any other data which kind of supports that, that uh, headline. Well, it's not about the data. The truth is that Islamophobia is absolutely underreported, and we know that it's underreported because mm. the conviction rates aren't high of hate crimes. So mm. during my time as the uh, member of the Home Affairs Select Committee, we uh, undertook a hate crime inquiry, and the Islamophobia inquiry was still ongoing at the time that I um, took my position as a shadow minister. So we, we, at that time we were worried, and following Christchurch, it is even more worrying Mm-hmm. Um, that we have a rise of more than 600%. I think it was the last time I looked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and there's, there's, a, there's, yeah. there's a quote which, which indicates that it's close to 1,000% uh, in your neck of the woods. I think, I think Leeds in, in one of the newspapers reported up there. Uh, but I guess guessing the percentages, the actual figures probably tell the, uh, the, the closer truth, I guess. And uh, on the face of it, like you're saying, it's underreported, the, the number of incidents doesn't appear to be high. Uh, but what you're saying is there's a systematic problem in recording these. There's a systematic... So, so it's, it is um, supposed to be recorded, but it's mm. not just about recording, it's about people having the confidence mm. to go to the police and, making, and recording it as a hate crime. Mm. And it being recognised as a hate crime, and that there's a lot of work to be done to get all 43 police forces in the country to get there where they are, you know, but, but they're, they're all adhering to good practice. And if I put it into context, you know, a couple of years ago when we were talking about honour crime, and honour crime is much more out there and known about, you know, a lot of the forces yeah. failed on being the best that they could be. Mm. So Islamophobia is still there's this whole thing about. You know, what is Islamophobia? And it's like the, the Seher said earlier, and I completely agree, it, what we what we need to talk about is structured Islamophobia mm-hmm. and structured and institutional Islamophobia. So, so one of the things as, as, as a member of the all-party parliamentary group, we tried to unpick some of this by having a definition, mm. which I'm pleased to say that the Labour Party has adopted, the Lib Dems have, um, as has Sadiq Khan and the London Mayor and many other councils. But what we've done is we've put a framework together to give a context of what Islamophobia is, what would constitute it. So when we're talking about, when Muslims are talking about, for example, Palestine, and when Muslims are talking about Kashmir, you know, they shouldn't be be shut down. Mm. There's lots of other um, examples as well, similar to the anti-Semitism IRA definition of when uh, Muslims are looked upon as, you know, they they are, um, well, they, they suffer. Mm. And it's about that, um, and it is Islamophobia. And there's this whole debate, you know, that the, the likes of um, Quillian Foundation and Majid Nawaz would argue that Islamophobia is a term that we shouldn't be actually using. Mm. And there's lots of debates around that. But the truth is, when I get attacked, if you look at my Twitter handle, you see plenty of Islamophobic abuse. Yeah. And, and that Islamophobia, I'm a Muslim because I believe in Islam. Mm-hmm. Because I follow all of Islam, so, so I, I guess that, that that sounds like a that sounds like a, a strategy by Islamophobes to actually sort of uh, um, reduce the seriousness, I guess, of the incidents uh, if there's still debate about the the terminology, right? Well, it's about you know you could argue it's about semantics. 
Mm. At the end of the day, really, there's a word that was in the 70s and um, 60s, we used to have the word racialism as opposed to racism. Mm. And that was the semantics of the word at that time. And the truth is that when you've got 800 um, organisations, plus organisations, and the, the definition is underpinned by the work of, you know, 70 plus academics, and for some of them, racism has been their whole life's work. Mm. Um, then yes, I would say the Tory party who will not wonder who haven't adopted it yet and haven't, uh, you know, um, accepted there's a need for an inquiry within their ranks. Um, there's a huge issue when our political leadership is mm. uh, in denial, complete denial. Well, it's an interesting point you raise because um, the, the the question arises in people's minds is that people in authority, people in power, people in a position to change legislation, etc. Um, and I, I quote the, I guess the uh, the incident of uh, a number, I think fifteen or so conservatives being suspended and then quietly reinstated again. So the question does arise: Are the people in authority and power taking Islamophobia seriously? Well, I would argue they're not taking it seriously. If mm. they took it seriously, we'd have an inquiry in the Conservative Party. I mean, I, I take it, you know, we we're swamped with Brexit right now. Mm. But the truth is that doesn't stop us from running the country. That the government should continue mm. to deal with and tackle uh, the rise of the far right. Mm. You know, this Cressida Dick put out a statement, I think it was earlier today, mm. about um, how they're tackling extremism and how they need to share more information. You know, if we look at prevent, you know, prevent uh, the review of prevent now mm. uh, is um, they, they, I, I'm really worried that they're using this rise of the far right mm. to say, well, actually, it's a balanced thing that's yeah, working now yeah. because we've got the right. But actually, my real worry is that prevent itself, it, the review is coming from a place of defending it as opposed to genuinely reviewing it. Mm. And, you know, so that's a worry for me. And that in itself, you know, if you looked at the Runnymede um, definition of Islamophobia, when they, sell, you know, when they when they talked about it 20 years on, mm. you know, there was this whole thing about prevent actually being racist mm. towards Muslims and Islamophobic. So we have to tackle not just the outwardly hate crime, etc., but actually the structural Islamophobia. When, you're, when the research tells you that if you're a Muslim woman with a hijab, you are 85% less likely chances of getting a job. You know, yeah. these kind of things for Muslim children to be left behind, hmm. all of these things are really, really pertinent and important. Indeed, indeed. And I, I guess the, the, the question leads on from, you, from the comment you made is how prevalent is this anti-Muslim Islamophobic view within the actual parliamentarians, uh, seeing that some of them have actually invited people like Wilders and etc. to the, the House of Commons. Uh, what, what, what is the, the picture uh, among the elected officials? Well, it's very worrying when you have Tory MP Bob Blackman mm. hosting Tappan Ghosh in Parliament, who Tappan Ghosh is yeah. Hindu nationalist anti-Muslim. Um, you've got Tommy Robinson being invited to the House of Lords for a cup of tea mm. um, by the UKIP peer. You've got, you know, you've got Tommy, uh, Tommy Robinson being retweeted. Uh, you have Zach Goldsmith, who ran the most Islamophobic campaign against, um, you know, Sadiq Khan. And there's yet an apology. It's, there's no apology written in the wing. There's, even, there's not even an acknowledgement, let alone an apology. So these, these kind of things they tell you where we're at with all of this. So I, I get, uh, the next question would be, what, what are the, do the Muslims have supporters and, and are the supporters doing anything to actually trying to bring about change at that level? Well, if you look at the all-party parliamentary group on British Muslims, it's led by and chaired by 
Anna Subri, who's a Tory, and West Streetin, who's a Liberal MP. Mm. And these these people have really, really, and Eleanor Smith, Tan Desi. You know, we've got some really, very really brilliant, aside from Muslims, who are non-Muslims, who are really, really flying the flag. And we, you know, in, in the Liberal Party, we have Jeremy Corbyn, and, you know, it's pushing against an open door when it comes to this stuff. Mm. Uh, because that's what he's done all his life, he's been an anti-racist campaigner. Mm-hmm. And he gets it, because, you know, Finsbury Park happened in his constituency. You know, so th- it's about having, um, yes, we have allies, and yes, we have the support. Um, yes, we have Brexit, which kind of swallows up the column space and the headlines and the time. Um, but we also have people who are really, really uh, supporting us. Over 50 cross-party cross, uh, parliamentarians endorsed the... Um, definition for Islamophobia. Mm. So, yeah, we do have people who are advocating and who are stepping up and, you know, not being bystanders and being upstanders, really. Brilliant. Well, on that note, Nair Shah, thank you very much for your time. And uh, indeed, perhaps we will speak on more occasions. I think this is the first time you've appeared on Inspire FM. And I think we're very pleased to have you uh, and perhaps on future occasions, too. Inshallah. Inshallah. Okay, Wa alaikum salam. Sahara, are you still online? Yes, I am with you. So, uh, I just wanted to perhaps uh, uh, final remarks from yourselves in terms of what uh, men would perhaps uh, ask the the Muslim population actually to do in in order to, uh, I guess, um, improve the situation that we kind of find ourselves in. Uh, Thank you very much. I think um, maybe a final remark. It is uh, for all the Muslim community to lead their own fight. It is always good to see broad-based alliances uh, behind this cause of tackling Islamophobia and so many political parties, apart from the Tories, for example, endorsing the definition of Islamophobia. But the truth is that things will never change until Muslims themselves lead the way. You know, we cannot just rely on the so-called lefty group to fight on our behalf because we know what God says in the Quran. Uh, uh, he will never change the conditions of people until they change within themselves. And, and that's why MEND is just a, a mechanism of a change where the Muslim community are empowered to not only advocating for this cause, but fighting for it because if we don't take steps now the future generation of muslims will be at risk their identity will be diluted so much so that they will not be uh, and they will not be recognizable because ultimately in mend what we're calling for is promoting equal citizenship for all and for all muslims to be unapologetically muslim Jazakallah for, for, for those comments, inshallah. Very well, uh, very well said. Uh, perhaps, perhaps we'll speak again on a future occasion, but I'm running out of time for, for this slot, inshallah. So Jazakallah, Sahar. No problem. Thank you very much. Right, uh, listeners, uh, you can join in the discussion today as well. Uh, you can call me on 01582481822 or text me on 0779481822 uh, if you have any views or comments uh, on this particular topic. We're talking about anti-Muslim hate crime. and We're talking about the headlines in The Guardian last week uh, about a rise of 583% in Muslim anti-Muslim hate crime uh, in, in the UK. I have also in the studio with me uh, Isa. Kazi, Kazi, Assalamu alaikum. Is the General Secretary of uh, LCM, Luton Council of Masajid, uh, and he, I guess this is a, a topic of particular concern to you as well. Absolutely, this is an immense challenge faced by the uh, by our Muslim community, and we we obviously need to become a lot more organised 
And as Naz Shah said earlier on, this is about the future of our children when and preparing uh, for their future today is the steps that are necessary for tomorrow. Sure. And we, we definitely need to um, think more about this collectively. And I think as a, uh, one of the ways forward, as we will talk later, is the only way to uh, to move uh, forward with a united platform and how we become united will is is the basis on which we need to think further about inshallah we're going to talk about the uh, the security situation in in the masajids uh, clearly masajids are our target uh, and it's something that we need to talk about and we are talking about inshallah uh, after the break uh, and uh, i guess just uh, just a, a brief update on what we were talking about earlier on today we we're talking about the anti-muslim hate crime uh, on the rise uh, there are headlines to indicate that uh, the problem is becoming more serious after the uh, the terrorist attacks uh, in New Zealand. Uh, we also have um, Zahid Khan, uh, who is with us in the studio. Zahid Khan is a campaigner, and his angle has been slightly different. He's been, uh, I guess, almost single-handedly uh, trying to educate uh, the wider population about Islam, the Islam awareness type of campaign. So, Salaamakum Zahid. So t- tell us uh, a little bit about what you have been doing to counter Islamophobia. Okay. <clears throat> we actually started in 1994. Wow. Long yeah. time ago. Th- those days... There and, was and we, we are... Who are you representing or is it just you? No, uh, there were other brothers. Sure, uh, okay. There were students. and sure. uh, Because we, we decided to do something about it. Uh, there's... We complain, all right? We sit in front of TV, we complain that these people, they hate us, they... Okay, you go 45 seconds. Yeah. No, no, we, we're going to go to a break uh, in a minute, inshallah. We, I'll come back to you. Uh, okay. I think it's probably probably ask you at an inconvenient time. Uh, okay. So, uh, listeners, we're going to go to a short break. And after okay. the break, we're going to carry on with our discussion with Zahid and others we have in the studio. Okay. Uh, uh, and also uh, some guests. Uh, we'll have Shokat Warayak, who's the founder and CEO of Faith Associates. He's going to talk about mosque security, inshallah. So stay tuned. Uh, it's going to be an informative couple of hours uh, and I would encourage you to listen in inshallah so whether it's uh, whether it's via your phone or through the radio stay tuned we'll be back after these short messages assalamualaikum you're listening to an inspire fm podcast making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on inspire fm Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM at 105.1. This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafar Iqbal. Uh, we were talking about the anti-Muslim hate crime, a rise in anti-Muslim hate crime before the break. We had Naz Shah, uh, who's uh, a Labour vice chair of all-party parliamentary group of British Muslims. Uh, we had her talking about uh, the widespread nature of uh, of Islamophobia within uh, within society and whether that's getting a, a enough of a profile. And her view was that it's not getting enough of a profile. There's still debates about definitions and what defines anti uh, Islamophobia, etc. 
And so we're going to uh, move on to a slightly related topic. So, uh, and that's to talk about more security. So one thing that that the the attack on mosques in uh, in Christchurch in New Zealand has demonstrated uh, is that uh, the mosques are seen as a visible target, uh, a visible target, uh, and there needs to be greater fo focus on security. There needs to be greater focus on security. So the question is, is are the masajid, are the mosques doing enough to secure their masallis? Uh, and uh, we will have, inshallah, Shokut Warayak. Uh, we're going to try trying to get hold of him. Uh, he can talk about uh, some of the work he's done in this field. But also we have Isaac Qazi Saab. Uh, he's from uh, Loon Council of Masajid. Uh, you know, what are the Masajid doing locally? Now, I, I don't know whether this is widespread or not, but uh, since the incidents, uh, I have been to a number of uh, Masajid and I've not seen a visible ramping up of security. Now, whether that's deliberate, uh, in not to sort of scare people or not to sort of uh, uh, be seen to be scared, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there doesn't appear to be any visible or any activity around securing the masajid. Uh, whether there's any discussions and, and actually attempts happening uh, beyond what's visible, uh, perhaps uh, um, Isaac Saab can, can talk about. Assalamu alaikum. Yes, so, absolutely. This is uh, 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 we're going through times, uh, testing times as a Muslim community, yes. undoubtedly. And one thing is assured that we, as a community, have a long history of um, facing these challenges. Sure. And we've sure. not hesitated, and we've not shied away from facing these challenges. Sure. And and what we're facing now is a really a uh, the future of our children mm. and how serious this has become. Mm. Now, masajids are places of worship. Yes. They are essentially places where people go to connect with the Creator and feel completely safe uh, to do that. So mm. the mosques are spaces for that purpose. Mm. Now, anything that actually intimidates that and threatens the safety and security of those who are attending is clearly um, an, uh, an area that we need to take some steps towards. There are um, uh, physical uh, measures that we can take. We can also take some um, uh, to, 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 to show some visibility. What can we expect from the local um, uh, uh, authorities, including the police? And what's the role of our ulimas and our imams in during the testing times that we have? What sure. can they do? So sure. I'll, I'll just briefly mention. Can, can, can just I just can we just just come back to that? Because I'm conscious of the fact that it's Maghrib time and we need to play the play the Maghrib azan. So we'll take a short break, inshallah, inshallah uh, listeners, and we'll come back and we'll pick up from where Isaac Kazi has left off. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Inspire FM 105.1. Uh, this is uh, Friday Night Live. Uh, you're with me, Zafri Kabal. Uh, we were talking about mosque security before the break, before the uh, Azan break, uh, and Isaac Kazisai was giving his view uh, on what measures uh, are being adopted at the moment uh, in order to secure uh, the masajid. Yep, carry on. And that hate level of hatred currently is focused on Muslims? and the Muslim community as a whole. Hmm. 
And that's taking its toll. In, and one of the examples, obviously, we, we've shown, we've seen, is we witnessed the New Zealand um, uh, far-right uh, terrorist attack. And that clearly has uh, an impact on what happens here and what do we do about it. So firstly, I think it's very important to make the point that um, we as a community have a long history of, of sustaining these uh, challenges and uh, we don't shy away from these challenges. Okay. It brings us uh, uh, as an opportunity that we come together and become more united and work towards a consolidated approach to our safety and security of our families, of our children and their future. We are talking about the children of today and tomorrow and what do we do for their future? Because they are being perceived hmm. when they go and when they play in, in the playground at the moment that they belong to a community that is associated with a particular label of mm, terrorists. That's right. Now, that's a perception in which an environment that our children are growing up. So we, that's a, one of the biggest challenges. Second one is really about what the authorities and what people who are in power are doing about this, how, um, how they are uh, delivering on their responsibilities, the government, local government, the police, and, and statutory authorities, and essentially the state. Sure. The state has the responsibility to put uh, measures in place for the safety and security of every citizen. Sure. We, as, as citizens, expect that as a minimum. Yes. And every community expects that. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think uh, I've got to call Abdul Majid online. I'll go to him first. And perhaps we'll come back to uh, Isak Kazi Saab. Assalamualaikum, uh, Abdul Majid. Uh, Abdul Majid, are you. Yes. Yes. Uh, so you have a comment to make uh, about the topic? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, during the time of Rasul Sallallahu yeah, the people used to attack Muslims and some of them even been, you know, tortured to death. Yeah. But that was 100% that uh, hatred was for the deen. Yes. And it was about Islam and they used to, you know, go against the teaching of Rasul Sallallahu about oneness. Yeah. But the problem now, today, is not because of the deen, because those people who are attacking us, they actually, they are not attacking us because we are talking about Tawheed. Is They are attacking us because of our approach to the people, the way we are, you know, exposing ourselves in the community now and creating the threat for them that these Muslims are. When, we, when, he, when you hear the people are saying, we will bring Sharia law, and we will make, you know, the kuffar, uh, their women as our slaves. And we will, we got, you know... Uh, well, I, I think that, that uh, uh, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, and I think that it's a very, very valid point as well. Uh, but ultimately, I guess, of of the both approaches that you're saying, the victims are the Muslim community, isn't it? So you've got the, yeah. within our community who's taunting, I guess, that kind of behavior. And when, when you know, there is that. But in, in some respects, right, uh, that kind of argument uh, excuses uh, the anti-Muslim hate. And I don't think we, we, we need to get into that, that situation. No, 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 no. Alhamdulillah, I'm saying that. Mashallah, if we, if we really, Mashallah, teach our own people what Islam is, the, the problem is that when our Muslims are divided in this kind of attitude, like somebody is 
trying to show that he is very, very nice and kind, and he is peaceful and he teach. And the other way, on the other side, it is the the extreme people. And in between those people who are moderate, they are nowhere, and they are becoming the more greater victims yes. of this kind of problem. So what I'm saying is, my only advice is that because I'm a part of community and I'm a public speaker and I do lots of dawa work, so I can only say to my ulama, as my brothers, that they should, you know, try our level best to bring the ummah together, especially the youth, and you know, make them understand what the beauty of Islam is. And then at the same time, we can take the help of the authorities. You know, because see, even today, this morning, I was reading a newspaper, and it was saying that, you know, uh, the uh, Islam is a threat to us, and these people should not be, you know, living in this country because these people are, you know, for trying to focus, uh, force us to have, you know, our women to wear decent dress. They don't know the, this. So, so many things are there, but I'm saying is, Alhamdulillah, our approach in Luton, mashallah, I've seen that since last week, I'm always there in every meeting of the police, mashallah, they are connecting together and they're also advising us as public speakers what we should be doing, how we should be creating the awareness and how we should be connected with the authorities. That's beautiful, mashallah. Okay. But my main problem is that we are being victimized by these people because actually we have, most of us, or generally some of us have shown a very wrong picture of Islam that creates a threat for all of us. Okay, I, I want to move on for that. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum. So, so uh, I guess it's a very good point for Zahid for you to come in because you have been doing a lot, right, to educate the wider community. So tell us, tell us what you have been doing. Look, um, majority project that we do is uh, in town center, in yeah. city center, or in the masjid, yeah. all right, and or in museum, in libraries and stuff. And we're really amazed. Uh, I, I, I'll go back to 1994. So tell me uh, what sort of activities you do then. Okay. We do like uh, trying scarf day. All so right. what, why, why does that help? All right. Why does that help? Because whatever project we do, we do what is affecting the the people in this country, the communities, yeah, what the image they have, all right? So when we did the first time many years ago trying hijab day, there was no hijab trying his scarf in this country, okay. yeah, even around the world, all right? So when we started it, and we were amazed, my gosh, we had non-Muslims saying, wow, mm. you know, I love it, you know, it's like... Uh, and, and tell us what happened last week then when... Okay, when, when that... Uh, that uh, incident happened in in New Zealand. That happened on the fifth. Yeah, we already arranged event four months before on the sixth, which is Saturday. So the sister volunteers we stood when I arrived with my box of uh, gifts and stuff to give it to public in Luton Town Centre. There were ladies waiting, you know, and there was one lady. She said, "Oh, queuing, I've been queuing up to try." Yeah, one. they they want to try the scarf. Okay, yeah, right. I even the volunteer the sister volunteers, they told me, brother, we found some baraka today, there are so many people. Right. And one thing I learned in my, since 1994, those days, we were looking for people to come and ask us questions. We used to get few people. Now, subhanAllah, man, every time the media show negative, yeah? We get so many people, man. Just hold that thought. I want to go to Shokat Warai Saab. We want to talk about mosque security. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, Shokat Saab. Walaikum salam. 
welcome to Inspire FM, and uh, thank you uh, for taking your time to speak to us today. So, so you are the founder and CEO of Faith Associates, uh, and you have a particular interest in mosques. Uh, t- tell us what what, um, what what your activities are and why mosque security is something that that, that uh, you're doing something about. Well, first of all, Jazako have for the invitation to speak on your radio station. You're welcome. Uh, Face Associates uh, was established back in 2004 uh, specifically to look at issues around governance, management, uh, strategy, planning, things like that, mostly management-related topics. And through the years, we've realized that mosques have increasingly required lots of different services. But after the killing of Lee Rigby, there was a huge spike in attacks against mosques. Mm, mm. And we had to quickly understand how to protect these buildings because our masajid in the UK are some of the most open community structures in the world. Yes. Uh, You know, they are open. Some of these buildings are open 24-7. People can walk in any time and and use those facilities. And obviously that poses a a major security threat Mm. if a person has an ill intent. Mm. Um, And when Lee Rigby attack happened, we uh, were approached by actually the Jewish community. Right, okay. Who basically said, look, we have had similar attacks on our buildings Mm. Uh, and would you like to uh, learn from what we have done to protect them? Mm-hmm. So we started to research about how they protected their facilities and then started to look at how we can protect our massages. So the project has grown since then. Okay, okay, inshallah. And, and what, what specifically uh, are you advising uh, the massages under the current context, I guess, in, since the attacks in, in New Zealand? So what... What we've been doing, and, and since, since that time in 2013, we've actually been regularly informing Masajids of how to, to basically protect their facilities. Fundamentally, there has to be initially a change in mindset, a mm. cultural change at the management level. Yes. Uh, the management needs to understand that this building has uh, a fantastic community outreach uh, initiative, but it also needs to protect its worshippers. Sure. You've been investing millions of pounds in the infrastructure. You need to start investing money in people. Mm. You need to start looking at the various vulnerabilities and what you need to do for that. You need to start selecting people, one, that have an interest in uh, safety and security, and secondly, that have the time to possibly sit at the management level and also engage with the wider uh, security infrastructure that the that the police and other agencies offer, mm. uh, and what happens since if that uh, mindset cha- uh, is adopted, then basically you start looking at the risk factors around mosques, and we produced uh, two three documents now that have been downloaded. Even since New Zealand, we've had nearly two thousand downloads mm. of the management guides and the security guides for mosques. Sure. Um, first thing is what we advising massages is that uh, uh, obviously change the mindset, but then start looking at your vulnerabilities. What time do you open? What time do you close? Sure. Who's got the keys? Uh, you know, are the fire exits uh, open, uh, openable? We've been to some mosques where the fire exits are even either covered by bins or even locked. Oh dear. Okay. Uh, so you know, if there was an attack, you know, people can't even get out of the building. 
So to tell us what sort of response you've you've had from Masajid then. Subhanallah, since that since New Zealand's attack, we there hasn't been a single day where we've stood still. We've literally been giving interviews. We've been going up and down the country speaking to Masajids. Mm. We've gone in to see Masajids and looked at their vulnerabilities. Mm. We've offered our advice. Uh, we've been linking people up with the police. Police have been in touch saying that they want to help the Masajid. Can you put us, put us in touch with people that are responsible? So, uh, Alhamdulillah, the Muslim community is waking up to the challenge because after New Zealand, the attacks didn't go down. Unfortunately, they went up. You saw the exactly, attacks yes. in Birmingham. You saw the attacks in Newcastle. You saw the attacks in London. So, Yanni, the Muslim leadership should not be under any illusion that these institutions are under threat. And the far right, and even the heads of the Metropolitan Police last week said that the fastest growing uh, extremist right. threat is from the far right. So we do have Isaac Qazi Saab, who's, uh, who's the General Secretary of the Luton Council of Masajid. So, so some of the specific points that, that uh, uh, Shokot Saab has, has, uh, has pointed out, uh, any of those being taken up by the Masajid that, that you uh, liaise with? As-salamu alaykum. Welcome, nice to speak to you again. Yes, um, uh, like yourselves, we, we have um, uh, Luton Council of here, LCM. And under which we have um, uh, around 26, seven uh, different massages as members. And in fact, uh, this very point that you mentioned, we've actually got um, uh, all the massage platform together coming up on Sunday, uh, this weekend, where um, uh, all the uh, masjid representatives, two management committee members, and one imam will, uh, have been invited to attend. So we're expecting about 60, 70 people to um, come and represent and talk about these concerns that, for example, that you've highlighted, concerns relating to security, uh, security and madrasa, uh, 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 sorry, security measures for masjids and worshippers and madrasa and, and for children that attend. And what kind of um, mindset do we now need to develop? And I think that's a critical area mm. that we need to think about. And I think that's the key part of the discussion that we will be having and 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 the second part of the discussion is really about where does that lead us to that clearly needs to lead a pathway to a more uh, further unity and how we collectively need to take these challenges that are faced by us and so there are some um, steps that we can take in terms of physical changes around our massages like security uh, cameras and things like uh, having a good communication and also thirdly working very closely with those who have wider responsibility for our security and that is the police and, and the local authorities. So I think those kind of com combination of measures will help us to think through what we need to do now and what we need to be prepared for tomorrow. So uh, although we have uh, only uh, a couple of days ago when we had a meeting with the senior uh, police, local authorities, education authorities, um, we, we were assured, because we asked, I asked the question, what's the intelligence telling you? How imminent is a threat that, that could be uh, uh, lingering on? We've been assured that as far as intelligence goes, uh, they do not find any immediate or uh, imminent threat. So that's reassuring one way, but I think it's important not to become complacent around sure. that. So proactively, as, as Brother Shaka said, 
that we now to need to move mm. our uh, our provisions that we have that they need to be much more protected sure, and sure. i think physical protection and visibly seen to be pro- being proactive and 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 thirdly i think it's really important for us for our alims and ulamas and imams to guide um our worshipers and guide um, the muslim community members and especially the young people how do we connect ourselves to our creator you know what kind of duas are really important what kind of zikr do we need to do sure. and these are the spiritual aspects that that we need to awaken to as well sure. because okay. the ultimate protector is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sure. and how do we connect with him and that's the kind of role that we want inshallah. our imams to emphasize on and move forward with physical changes mindset as well as said inshallah so so i think some final comments uh, uh shogat I'm, i'm running out of time so in terms of i think uh isaac has mentioned about visible security uh visible security versus uh not scaring people in a, in about 30 seconds what what's your what's your viewpoint on that hafsab uh, has been perfectly correct i think the key challenge for the muslim community now We need to start preparing for Ramadan. Sure, yes, yes. Uh, Ramadan is around the corner. You need to prepare teams. Hmm. Uh, some brothers need to be given the uh, uh, advice to say, look, you may not need to pray with the congregation. You need to stand outside hmm. with a high-vis jacket, preparing and pr- protecting the worshippers in, in, in an eventuality of a, an unknown person coming and being suspicious, sure. uh, challenging that person and advising that person. Right, okay. Uh, I've, I've run out of time, uh, Shogut Saab. So you're saying visible security, a must for Ramadan, inshallah. Jazakallah, Shogut Saab, for taking out your time and, and talking to us today. Assalamu alaikum. Listeners, listeners, we're going to take a short break. Inshallah, we'll be back after the break. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Islamophobia, must security, etc. afterwards. Uh, but then we're going to go to a complete completely different topics stay tuned assalam alaikum this is atif nawaz and you're listening to an inspire fm podcast assalam alaikum welcome back you're listening to uh friday night live on inspire fm 105.1 my name is zafar iqbal Uh, and I'll be with you uh, for this next hour. Also, uh, we have been discussing in the last hour uh, topics related to Islamophobia. So we talked uh, <clears throat> at six o'clock uh, about the rise in anti-Muslim hate crimes uh, as reported by Talmama uh, and and published in The Guardian. Uh, we had Naz Shah, uh, the Labour Vice Chair of All-Party Parliamentary Group on British Muslims, talking about um islamophobia being prevalent in institutional institutions including the elected officials uh, and and what work is being done to try to 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 change that uh we also had saher uh, al faifi uh, from mend uh, and she talked about what mend is doing to uh, to bring awareness uh, and a critical message uh, from her closing remarks was really to get all the muslims to be active uh to be able to to basically uh uh try and bring about uh, a difference in in the image that that muslims have inshallah and that means being active uh we did i did say that we had uh zafar khan um zaid khan i should say uh in the studio and he was talking about uh the activities that he's been doing uh to bring 
I guess, understanding, awareness and understanding in the wider community. And he mentioned, he talked about uh, basically the, you know, the hijab, you try basically uh, offering to, for for non-Muslims to try on the hijab to see, yeah. to feel the experience, to feel uh, what it feels like. And you're saying there's a, there's a great demand for that. Yes. Yes, because what we do is that we give them free scarf is in a goodie bag with sweets and uh, uh, if there's enough funds, we give them a rose as well. With each rose, there's a card. Uh, what right. the Prophet said about treatment of women and what is, uh, Allah says in the Quran. So we give them as a gift. What really surprised the public is that they want to give donations. We say, no, these are free from Muslim community. Right. And they get dumb stock. They said, hey, you know, is this free? I say, yeah, it's free. Sure. And they can't, they can't believe it. They said, we never receive anything free in our lives. But also, I think under the banner of Whammy UK, you've been battling the image, uh, uh, of, you know, the, the negative image Muslims have through social media too. Yes, alhamdulillah, what we, uh, what we have noticed is that uh, when this incident happened in uh, New Zealand, and I knew uh, how to reach to people in New Zealand mm -hmm. because um, we we wrote a very sweet message, yeah. Mm -hmm. And because you have to pay Facebook money, otherwise they don't do free things, all right. So we advertise it, but it was very sweet message and. Majority people who responded, they were for all New Zealand from uh, Christchurch. And uh, they would love it. They said, thank you so much. Even you Muslims are from Britain. And uh, this very kind and sweet of you that you sending uh, a, such a nice words. Uh, and the other uh, thing I would say, you know, when we did a London event about yeah. the uh, hijab scarf day uh, on Facebook, one non-Muslim lady, which is very nice of her, she wrote a message that, look, people came to your mosque to kill, but in return, you gave them, you're giving gifts. MashaAllah. Very good. You know? let's, let's, let's kind of pause on that point. Uh, let's wrap up the mosque security topic. Last couple of messages for you before I move on. I do have uh, Usman Zahid Saab from Pakistan. I know he's very late in Pakistan. We want to move on to the next topic. So if you could just just finish off uh, the mosque security topic and then we'll move okay. on. So um, I was just saying that in order to uh, address some of the key issues that we now face, we've called a meeting of all the massages for Sunday at 2.30 and we requested that every masjid um, and in Luton sends uh, one imam and two management committee members because the responsibility of management committee uh, is heavily um, uh, relied on now. Mm. Now that's why we need to bring everyone to around the table and talk through the issues that we need to take uh, uh, and measures that we need to put in place and what mechanism can we agree and put in place should there be an incident, how do we get together, how do we contact each other, how do we communicate and the third and most important thing is a reassurance from the local police and what we expect from them. Sure. And, 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 and that is a critical, and we have been working very closely, and we have all the assurances that are necessary from them. And I think uh, we are very fortunate to have those kind of things in place. And finally, I think I would say, um, we are not a community that is scared. Sure. We we haven't shut any of the masjids, mm. and we haven't closed any of the madrasas. So. Um, but what this does awaken us to is a further responsibility 
of security measures that we now need to practically take. Inshallah. So in summary, the Masajid are taking more security seriously, and that's a message to uh, the Vasallis out there, inshallah. So Ramadan coming up, uh, inshallah, there will be facilities to protect and secure them. We do want to move on to a slightly different topic. Uh, now, there's been a lot of excitement, a lot of newspaper articles, and a lot of writings about oil. Uh, oil in Pakistan. Oh, right, that's an interesting one. We relied so for so many years uh, oil from Saudi and free oil from Saudi or loaned oil from Saudi. But we are, well, when you say we, the Pakistanis are getting oil for themselves, uh, allegedly. So let's get the facts. Uh, I've got uh, Usman Zahid Saab. He is a BBC producer uh, in Pakistan. Inshallah, we'll talk to him. And we also got Asad Mahmood, his office of uh, OIC, uh, representative of, of PTI uh, in the UK. So let, let's go to, to Usman Saab. Usman Saab, uh, facts, please. What's the situation? Uh, has Pakistan struck oil? Uh, well, it's uh, been in the news uh, since, you know, the, when this uh, last comment, when uh, we have... Um, uh, uh, this uh, PMLN uh, government was in uh, uh, you know office at that time actually this deal was signed with Exxon Mobil okay. company that is like largest uh, oil company in uh, South Asia so basically that was the deal was done at that time so they decided to do a complete survey and after that they uh, you know initially estimated a cost of like 100 million dollar to start digging in the uh, in the Karachi Sea basically mm. so like that was like uh, the initial idea was basically that uh, it's the largest ever discovery of uh, oil in this area and uh, you know not just Exxon, Exxon but uh, three different other companies will basically join them and uh, because it's a big reservoir mm. and uh, I mean, so, I mean, they started actually, though, they have they started working on it, but, uh, um, you know, this, uh, so far, this recovery is not very, you can say, it's not definite, like, basically, they found the, it's uh, after nine months gap, basically, this, in January, they started drilling this offshore. Right, okay. So, 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 basically, so they know the oil is there, but it's hard to get at, is that what you say? Uh, well, it is, I think, quite technical because uh, there are different companies like Italian firms are involved and, uh, uh, you know, this uh, it's uh, ultra deep water, which is uh, like too, uh, it's uh, quite deep and, uh, you know, it's not never done in Pakistan before. So they, uh, that's why I think this uh, uh, this type of project is quite, uh, you know, you know, the, if you uh, get in a estimate of is 5,800 meter deep in the sea level. Well, wow. And, uh, so it's the next 60 days basically or in a month maybe so we'll get a clear picture what exactly we are having okay. here in this uh, and in terms of its uh, you know volume and kind of capacity. But uh, everyone is very positive. Prime Minister Imran Khan has announced a couple of times that uh, okay this is a, like a really big thing uh, if we uh, get a kind of success in this uh, project. So it will be enough for you know uh, Pakistan all energy crisis and it will be come to an end and also Pakistan will maybe some reports are suggesting that it's maybe bigger than Kuwait reservoir. Wow. So okay. Once wow. We, yeah. So it's all, you know, just uh, you can say in uh, the kind of just reported thing so far. I mean, nothing is concrete. No, nothing is concrete. But then, then again, I think that we've been saying there's loads and loads of oil in Bluchistan. 
uh, and that's on land. And I'm not sure what's been done to actually extract it from there. Um, in Balochistan, they were like, uh, uh, you know, because of uh, some other issues and security issues, not much uh, foreign companies were basically ready to go and start actually the these type of projects in the, there. But I mean, this see, uh, since these companies have were experienced and they done, I think, in uh, India also they were involved in the these type of projects. So that's why they. I took the challenge and uh, you know signed the deal and uh, I think now they are seriously uh, you know started this project and uh, trying their best to you know to come up with some uh, discovery. So in, in terms of in terms of who owns the oil, which state is it the the federal government who own it or is it the the Sindh government who's going to own it? Who, who's who's going to be the beneficiary? No, I think it's a, it's a quite a big project, and these type of projects are normally basically funded and uh, always done by the federal government. And it's not like provincial government can't handle these type of uh, you know uh, big projects because uh, it's a needs big revenue and it's a, you know kind of a, a multi-billion deal, so it can't be you know just done by the provincial governments. So I guess it'll, it'll, it'll project Karachi into a different league then, would it? If it's struck? Yeah, I mean, actually, earlier Pakistan has drilled 17 times in deep sea, if you, I mean, okay. but the wells were either found dry or not commercially viable to the operators, basically. So in this, some surveys or, uh, you know, it says basically Indian offshore companies and all uh, they sometimes produce 3,050, uh, sorry, more than uh, 350,000 barrels per day. Okay. And uh, but here, if we uh, Exxon, uh, you know, they estimated that 25% of the in May 2018, that that was the figure that 25% of the work they can do, like in the first phase, and uh, you know, the uh, Pakistan may, de- uh, may meet you know, 15 to 20% of energy through this uh, okay. oil, but. Uh, it's still, you know, very early stage, and you know, maybe in a month or maybe in a bit more, we can hear something, you know, definite from these sources. Right, and then also that there's been reports that the KPK government in itself has been trying to drill some for some oil as well. Is that is there any truth in that as well? Yes, I mean, it was not like a large reservoir, but they were like always they been, you know, this local Pakistani companies which are involved for the oil. Uh, uh, drilling and they are, they always find some reservoirs in different areas. I think in Kohat area they yeah. found uh, last year they found and they're working on it now. But uh, I mean Pakistan has uh, like spent a huge money on the uh, oil import, you know, and also you know recently they signed a deal with Saudis to for the oil and uh, all because to meet its uh, energy crisis because you know. Uh, Pakistan produce electricity with oil as well, so it always needs uh, oil for its uh, economy to run. So, uh, you know, to any discovery in Pakistan is basically they try to, uh, you know, go for it and uh, try to reduce this import bill so that they can country, you know, can uh, mm. put uh, more on development side rather than just importing to oil. So, okay, and then I guess the next question would be, uh, is the, I guess the the organization of the country, um, I guess, uh, clean enough to benefit the, the entire nation or 
whether this is going to be, uh, I guess, uh, another industry which may benefit a handful and not, not the, the, the the country itself? Uh, well, it <laughs> depends. I mean, once they will, uh, you know, start a kind of, uh, you know, actual project. Because, you know, these companies, they have their own share. When yes, exactly, yes. Come yeah, so they, they have certain shares from this oil production. And, uh, uh, you know, it depends uh, how they go with these deals and uh, who signed these deals. And basically, once uh, everything is uh, clear and basically available to, figure will be available to media and also, you know, when it's present in a uh, kind of economic uh, uh, documents like uh, budget documents, etc., then we can say something about that because it's uh, too early to, you know, predict any kind of embezzlement or anything. Okay, all right. So, so yeah, are you okay to stay for another ten minutes, or are you? I know it's very yeah, late sure. in Pakistan. I'm fine. Inshallah. Okay. So, okay. I, I just want to bring bring uh, Asad Mahmood on. He's uh, he's basically from the Office of International Chapters (OIC) uh, of PTI. Uh, so, uh, the, this looks like an initiative that was uh, started off by the previous government, and uh, there does seem to be an attempt to try and sort of perhaps capitalize on this. Uh, Asad Saib, is, is that the case? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. Much appreciated. Um, essentially, just a couple of things I would like to clarify. First mm. of all, uh, I haven't come across this, that this was initiated at the previous government, right. simply because if you go on to the Pakistan Axon mobile website yeah. and you click on its name, it says that um, they actually open up their offices after three decades. Right. So they open up their offices on 27th of November 2018, and right. it doesn't mention anything to do with the previous government. So that particular fact that the gentleman highlighted earlier, I, I would hardly dispute that. Um, now, the main... So he, he's, he's a BBC producer, right, in uh, in Pakistan. And I guess I guess we, we could be talking about agreements signed by the previous government. The offices might have been, might have been open during the tenure of PTI. It could have been, but the media reports that I've been reading, sure. um, they have been stating that um, this particular company, Accent Mobile, he was actually absent for three decades in Pakistan. Sure. Yeah. Um, also, none of the media outlets in Pakistan have referred to any of of this lacking that it was signed in previous governments. So I would highly doubt that particular statement, but let's not get carried away with that one. Sure. Um, essentially, what it is, is that this particular government, uh, PTI government, has actually taken the initiative and done something. Even though the agreements might have been signed, sure. you know, you can go into the argument, why didn't you do something, etc., hmm. etc. Et but just, it is actually quite interesting because, first of all, it's made up of uh, four different companies. So it's yeah. ExxonMobil, which is an American company, is saying in the agreement that if we discover the oil, we will keep 25%, and the rest would be, obviously, uh, with the Pakistan government. Now... Is at the moment what what they're saying is this mixed media reports. Um, Mobile and the company said we will give you a report in April, which is just around the corner. Yeah. Um, and it essentially 143 miles of Pakistan, like of Karachi, yeah. and the target that they want to drill is up to 5,000 uh, meters, I think, yeah. and they've got up to 4,000. Now. In previous, previously, many different oil companies have tried in exactly the same place, and they have they haven't given much of a response. There's been a neutral response. Right. Um, however, at the moment, Pakistan only meets 15% of its um, oil needs uh, domestically, which is 
Um, essentially, we actually have uh, oil fields actually in Punjab that was uh, discovered during the time of um, General, uh, President Ayub Khan. So that was in 1964. And with the help of the Soviet, we, we actually drilled and that oil well, which is located in Punjab province in um, Portova Plateau. So at the moment, Punjab produces about 15%, but 84% is exported, um, imported sorry, from sure. different companies. Um, which is a heavy, heavy, basically, foreign uh, um, debt on the Pakistani account. So we have, a, at the moment, just to get the figures right, at the moment we have a, a current account deficit of 18 billion, and we have the import bill of 12.9 billion. Sure. Um, and that was from last fiscal year. So putting all this in perspective, I would say there are positive signs. ExxonMobil have come back in. Yeah. They bought four other companies, uh, sorry, Two other companies, um, because it's a joint venture. Two of them are Pakistani, so we've got the development company, uh, sorry, oil and gas development company limited, which is based in Pakistan, and then the good. Is that a government organisation or private organisation? Um, it's as far as I know, it's a government entity, um, sure. semi quasi quasi government, mm -hmm. um, which is a Pakistani base. The other one is ENI, mm -hmm. Mobil, and then you've got the other two. Right. Okay. And they all. So, what's the likelihood that they're going to this? If they've actually attempted to drill oil in that region before, what's the likelihood that they will actually succeed this time? Then is that is any? I guess, I guess that, Imran Khan is, is sending out positive vibes. You don't know how much. Imran Khan and it was actually initially highlighted by the petroleum minister Gulam, um, right. uh, Gulam Khan. He was the initial one which uh, sent out positive news that actually, you know, we might be. Um, on a hunch here, there might be something happening. Um, the problem here at the moment is there's nothing concrete coming at the moment. Mm. Um, we know that if, you know, God willing, if this does happen, then yes, Pakistan will be, you know, one of the top 10, uh, they say, um, oil producing countries in the world and certainly the, one of the biggest ones in. But, but it will still mean that 15, only 15% 15 of the oil requirements of the country will be. Uh, no, we... no. At the moment, at the moment, it's fifteen percent. So we, at the moment, Pakistan actually meets fifteen percent of its domestic petroleum needs with that. With, with that, with well, the, that cur the current production, yeah. you mean? Yeah. Yeah. The current production is only fifteen percent, and right. eighty-five percent is through imports. So who are they? We all know them: Saudi Arabia, UAE, sure. Qatar. You know, all these countries. Right. But that that means that we have an import build of twelve point nine billion dollars. Right. Even so, 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 so with this, if this is successful, then I guess that that import bill is going to reduce significantly, and may, maybe maybe Pakistan become an exporter. Is that what you're saying? Well, at the moment, it, well, it'll be a phased stage. So that the first stage will be, you know, we will start importing our own oil, and but that again, the problem here is, um, and I'm sure my other gentleman would appreciate that. The problem here is, for the past ten years, a decade, none of the previous governments invested any single thing they just all talk and sadly nothing happened so even if well, we, well, we, we haven't that, we haven't got representatives from the other parties to 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 sort of uh, argue with your argue the case um so no, I, I think i think i think we stick to facts right rather than sort of uh, uh I mean, yeah. I've, of course i've told you the fact which is eight okay so let's so. let's just assume Let's go on the fact. So 15% at the moment is domestic petroleum. Yeah. Um, the gentleman just said, well, in the previous government, the, um, the tenure was signed. Okay, well, if it was signed, didn't you guys not know that 15% was met and you got import bill of, you know, $13 billion? Yeah, but he, he, I think he's... he's so, so, so Zaid, he's, he's actually, unfortunately, he's get, uh, gone. He's, uh, 
he's Usman Zahid. Of he's course. a BBC producer. He's, I don't think he has party political affiliations. No, no, no. I of course, I'm not, I'm not actually directing my questions. One directed at him. It, it was just it, the way he, I guess, started was saying, you know, it was started by that. And, so, okay, but it hit a raw nerve then with you, yeah? Sorry. It hit a raw nerve with you then. <laughs> no, it's it's just like you know when it, it just baffles me that you've been in well not that particular gentleman but the people who've been in government for five years ten years did they not know that at that point you signed it right at the end of your tenure like were you yeah, not okay. were you not aware the, of then so, the, the, then then the question comes will the other countries will interfere that these things doesn't happen so that Pakistan will still buying yeah, that's, instead that's of a very, producing their own. That's a very good question. Uh, so what are the chances that, um, you know, the spoilers might, uh, I'm not naming any names or any countries, but spoilers might disrupt this? Well, to be honest, they're, they're, they're already trying. They've already tried. Um, mm. And, you know, that is, again, if you have, it, it all comes down to um, a strong leadership, a strong, I guess, you can say military. which we which we currently have. You think? I think we have a strong leader, um, which is providing us a direction. And it's only been seven months. We've only been sure. well. PTI government has only been there seven months, and within seven months, there's there's been a lot of activity that we haven't seen before. I guess so. Yes, a lot of different questions. But I don't know if you saw today the um, the Indian. Uh, the ex-Indian Army journal. Um, he was actually, I was just uh, flicking through the channels and he was on, on one of these channels and he was basically saying how well the previous incident had played and how well the Pakistan Army had played its part. Um, mm. So I think it's fair to say the high command, they're well aware of the of risks. The dangers, risks, the dangers, that's right. So I, I guess the wider picture is, is that how is this going to play in the old CPAC? Uh, arrangement. So, That's discovery of oil is that is that a positive or is that going to be a negative? Then, I I mean personally, I think it will be quite positive, especially for China. So at the moment, what China does is they get imported oil from Middle East, so they mm. get their ships and they you know go through that and longer routes. So, which is why one of the reasons they want to build a CPAC, a pipeline as well, um, so that it's easier for them to meet their energy needs. Now, if this oil comes as it, as it's saying, then that would mean huge things for us in Pakistan and also for China. I mean, they don't perhaps don't even need to go to other countries and just say, well, we'll just invest heavily with you. And they already have, by the way, they've already invested um, sure. in our oil refineries that we've got in Punjab um, near the Potohol Plateau. Right. Sure. Okay. So I, I guess uh, from what you're saying is is a po positive potentially a positive turnaround. Uh, and, and I guess uh, we look forward to the positive news, the good news that that Exxon Mobil or whoever uh, yep. actually succeeds this time, uh, unlike in previous occasions. Um, I said, Mahmoud Saab, thank you very much again for for joining us today. I know you're you're becoming a bit of a regular, inshallah. I know you've been here before. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, and, and we'll talk again in the future. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you so much. Right, listeners, uh, we were talking about a slightly different topic to what we started off with. We started off with, with anti-Muslim hate crime soaring in the UK. Uh, we talked about mosque security uh, and we then moved on to a slightly different topic, um, unconnected completely. We talked about an international issue. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about oil in Pakistan. Uh, I think it brings excitement to some members of our community. Uh, hopefully that was informative to you. 
Uh, we're going to move on to another international topic after the break. We're going to talk about the Golan Heights. What is that, you ask? Stay tuned, inshallah. After the break, all will be revealed. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back after these short messages. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live. My name is Zafri Kabal, uh, and we are talking about the Golan Heights. Uh, before the break, we were talking about oil strike in Pakistan or potential oil strike. The story has been publicized ahead of the actual event. So no oil has been found yet, but they're trying very hard. And they think they're going to get something. So we had uh, Usman Zahid, BBC producer uh, for Pakistan, uh, and he was talking about the facts. Uh, we also had uh, we also had uh, Asad Mahmood, the representative of PTI, and he was giving facts around um, you know the potential for for getting oil and what that means for the economy of Pakistan. So uh, again, slightly different topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the Golan Heights. Uh, in fact, instead of me describing what that is, and if you're not familiar with, with the Golan Heights, uh, I'm going to welcome uh, Muhammad Atif Saab, a regular contributor to our station, inshallah. He's, uh, uh, he's also contributed to Voice of America uh, Radio. Uh, and we're going to ask, I'm going to ask, and welcome, uh, first of all, uh, Muhammad Atif Saab, uh, and ask him what Thank the Golan Heights are. Asalaamu Alaikum, Atif Saab. Thank you very much. Welcome again. Welcome again. It's always a, a great pleasure to, to, to receive you on our radio station, inshallah. Uh, well, always a pleasure. Thank you. Um, just asking the question. So, so we're going to talk about the Golan Heights. And perhaps you can explain to people who are not familiar with that term what Golan Heights is. Well, so um, first of all, to explain Golan Heights, I mean, it's a strategic area between Syria and Israel. It's, it's uh, as the name itself says, um, these are heights. Hmm. So that's why it is a very strategic area for both countries. And this area was captured by Israel um, in the 1960s during the Arab-Israel War. Hmm. And after, since then, Israel has uh, had... Uh, uh, authority on this area, but none of the international powers uh, had accepted that uh, this area now belongs to Israel, and uh, U.S. is the first country that has said that, uh, you know, we believe that this area now belongs to Israel, or in other words, they have said that we accept Israel's occupation in that area. Right, so in effect, and this is the, the, the message that was sent by the Trump administration, uh, that um, the Golan Heights is being accepted as uh, an as as a part of Israel, I guess. Part of Israel. P- part of Israel. Yes, uh, that's 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 how the message is. That's what the message is. But there are, um, as, uh, I mean, in in the U.S., uh, there is a debate that why uh, the Trump administration accepted 
Israel's uh, occupation as uh, as a right to Israel on that uh, strategic area. And President Trump, when he announced that America is going to accept it, he said it's a strategic area and very important for the security of Israel. And that's why the U.S. or his administration uh, is going to accept that right. Uh, but then again, there are voices in America that have said that, uh, no, America should not have done that. In the United States, United Nations uh, and the European Union, there have been voices against it. And then also, um, this move is being seen as a favor to Netanyahu by some um, American experts as well on, on, on the Middle Eastern area, as we all know that uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu is, uh, is um, you know, has been investigated and interrogated on the charges of corruption, and his own Attorney General have said that we should indict him. So this move is seen as a favor to Netanyahu before the election in which Netanyahu is contesting, and if he wins, he this will be his fifth term in the office. So this is seen as a big favor mm. to Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and of course, this, this follows on the heel of America recognizing Jerusalem as the capital uh, of Israel. Yes, um, but it's very important to know that this resolution in the American Congress was presented in 1990s, but right, okay. the Congress never took a vote on it. But under uh, President Trump's administration, the, uh, the administration pushed it and the Congress took a vote and it happened. Okay, so I, I guess the, the, the question would be, uh, is that, is American recognition legal from an international law perspective? Well, I'm, I'm not... I'm not an international law expert, so I cannot tell you whether it's legal or not. Countries have their own foreign policies. America has a foreign policy for the Middle East, and Israel is America's closest ally. Mm. So when it comes to you know taking a side in in a dispute, then in, instead of uh, judging yourself as being right or wrong, you know you think differently. And I, I think that's what America has done all over the years. Uh, and we all know that uh, last year when uh, the state of Palestine presented a resolution in the United Nations, America stopped funding to that organization, to that branch of the organization. America also stopped funding uh, of the hospitals that were treating uh, Palestinians in Gaza and in Jerusalem. So a lot has been done under this administration because this administration fairly thinks that uh, uh, Israel is a stronger ally in the region and they are going to make things comfortable for her. Okay, so so uh, has this got, I guess, a connection with um, the war in Syria uh, allegedly coming to a conclusion or, or at least the signals are that it's coming to a conclusion? Uh, and this move is intended to coincide as a show of of force against uh, a resurgent um, Assad, maybe. Well, when it comes to Syria and Assad, the US has a different policy, and the US tries has tried to involve the regional uh, powers as well. As you know, Turkey is with the US when it comes to Syria. Russia is with Assad when it comes to Syria, but Russia and Turkey have been cooperating. So the the war in Syria and the fight against ISIS is a different animal. At least I look at look at it as as a different 
issue. Uh, indeed, indeed. But but see, seeing that that's coming to a conclusion, uh, and and maybe uh, in some ways strengthening of Assad, Israel sees that as a threat, and this is meant to kind of like cement or reinforce American involvement in the areas to say you may have won a victory with the help of Russians in one area, but don't even think about the Golan Heights. Isn't that right? Would that be a... Well, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think uh, that uh, the current regime of uh, Assad is in a position to do anything to any country for that sure. matter. Um, and we've, we've seen that uh, Israel takes preemptive strikes on Syria quite often. Um, and, uh, you know, even if the war is over, uh, Syria would need a lot of time to rebuild. And, you know, they have so many challenges. So I don't think they can afford to go in a war with any neighboring country. And when it comes to Israel, uh, Israel is the mightiest power in the region when it comes to military mm. power. Uh, and then, you know, it has full American support. So I don't think any Arab nation would want a war against Israel. And the Arab nations have also started accepting Israel, as you've seen mm. recently Oman's case. And, uh, you know, there are talks in, in Saudi Arab and other uh, states as well. Uh, when it comes to the Arab world, uh, I think the bigger issue is Iran's support to Syria and Assad. So, I mean, if, if there is any challenge for Israel, that challenge is Iran and Assad nexus. Right, okay. So, I think from your, your point, uh, you're suggesting is more to do with the elections in Israel than anything else. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring, uh, welcome uh, Ismail Patel Saab. He's, uh, he's the chair of the Friends of Al-Aqsa. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Ismail Saab. Assalamu alaikum and assalamu alaikum to all your listeners. Uh, welcome to Inspire FM. Uh, so, so I'm not sure how much of that that you caught. So we're talking about the Golan Heights uh, and America's recognition uh, that that they belong to Israel. Uh, what, what does that mean, I guess, um, for the region, the Palestine in the region? Is 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 that a significant shift uh, in policy, or how do you view it? Yeah, I think uh, we have to remind ourselves of two things. It's almost a hundred years uh, to the date when uh, Balfour gave away Palestine to the Jewish community yeah. as a national homeland. Mm. And we have here two uh, independent white leaders giving away another piece of land as if it belongs to them when it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So we have a repetition here of a colonialist empire uh, that is still carrying on. And I think we need to remind ourselves of what's happening. I think it's, it's very important to put it in the context. Right. Uh, having stated that, I think uh, it's quite dangerous uh, the steps that has been taken by Donald Trump Mm -hmm. because it's going to allow Israel to annex the region. Mm -hmm. uh, and if Likud win the election, the chances are that they will make it part of Israel. But um, it, it's already annexed, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it already occupied? Uh, legally. It's, a, it's an occupied territory, but it's not annexed. Right, okay. Uh, there's a legal terminology there. Uh, basically, they would make it part of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it, 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 it would be within the map of Israel, and they'll do whatever they like. At the moment, at least, it's an occupied territory, and they recognize it's occupied territory like the, the rest of the world community does. And another very important thing is America is the only country mm. now that is recognizing the rule of Israel over the Golan Heights mm -hmm. uh, without exceptions. So, you know, it's unprecedented uh, move by America to, to take and allow Israel the, the potential to, to make it part of Israel. Mm. The other, what follows from that is Likud, which has been very 
she was aggressive in trying to annex the West Bank as well. Mm. And a couple of months ago, they mentioned that if they were to win the election, they will try and annex the whole of West Bank to make it right. So, so you're you're saying that this this has uh, implications for the occupied territories of, of Palestine as well. Uh, absolutely, this is a test to see how the world community reacts. Whether Israel can quote unquote get away with it again, and if they are, and there isn't enough. Resistance from the world community, then I think it gives them a green light to go ahead and do more stuff. And, and I think they have been operating on those principles from very early days. Mm. Uh, that their aggression is such that they see that they, they they make an aggressive move, and they see how the international community is going to react. And if they don't, then they move forward. Mm. And this is one step in in their sort of repertoire of what they have been doing in the past. Right. So you're saying it's a template. It's a template for potentially. Uh, other types of aggression in in the region, uh, and and um, so I think they both both I think Mohammed and yourself has stated that America is the only one who's recognised uh, this um, this uh, this situation. What's been the reaction of of um, the other world leaders? I guess uh, you know European and and otherwise. Very muted. I mean, let's let's face it; it hasn't been as. Uh, uh, forefront and aggressive as it ought to be. I mean, mm. we have got here America recognizing the illegal occupation of a territory by another country. Mm. Um, this is really theft. Mm. And, and uh, you can, <laughs> there's no way of camouflaging it. Mm. And the international community are providing some sort of lip service. Nobody's accepting it, but nobody's doing anything about it. I mean, mm. nobody's saying that, all right, if you go ahead with this, we'll put sanctions upon you. There will be a boycott, but we will censor you. Nothing. Mm. Absolutely nothing. So in providing lip service to a state like Israel and a colonialist move like that Trump has got at the moment, the ideology that he's, he's propagating is insignificant. Mm. Uh, words themselves we are not likely to change anything on the ground. Uh, but I think Israel itself might chew more than it, it can handle because if it's going to take Golan Heights, then we have and the potentially moving of the West Bank, then it has the whole population to handle and how it's going to do that would be another crisis on their hand. So, so what, what, Atif, so what, what's, the, what's the light? Uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, Israel is not worried about Syria and Syria won't do anything, uh, anything that, that would threaten its security. But what about legal moves? And uh, would, would Syria try well, to le- sort of... Le- legally, you know, even if America accepts it, nothing happens mm. because that's just America that has accepted Israel's right mm. on Golden Heights. Right, I mean, quote-unquote, that's that's what the administration said. But legally, it cannot become their territory. The United Nations will not accept it mm. as Israeli territory. It will remain a disputed land in the eyes of international world. But your other guest was talking about how are they responding to this. Mm. So the response is muted, mm. even in the Arab world. Response is muted. No big protests. We didn't see uh, any protests, uh, even in Beirut, Mm. when Secretary uh, Secretary Pompeo landed in Israel uh, the morning after, uh, the night after uh, uh, President Trump uh, tweeted that Mm. uh, this is uh, his decision. So, I mean, it comes back to what are we trying to get out of the international community. But before looking at the international community, I think we have to look at the region. When the when the Arab region and Israel's uh, neighbors and the neighboring Arab countries are not talking about it, why should we accept the rest of the world to mm. say something significant on that? So I think, again, coming back to what I said 
before that it's the nexus of Iran and Syria. Right. The Arab world is uh, divided between Shia Islam and Sunni Islam, and it will remain like this. You know, the Saudis and uh, the Gulf countries, they want a Sunni power in the region, and they see Iran, Yemen, Syria, Bahrain as a threat to that power. They they want to create a nexus which would um, marginalize and minimize Iran to the most. And that's why you've seen that, you know, when the uh, U.S. administration tried to repair their uh, relationship with the Gulf countries, and especially the Saudi Arab, you saw that uh, Iran has started coming under new sanctions in Trump administration, uh, more pressure on Iran. And even, you know, the non-regional Muslim countries uh, were pushed by these uh, Sunni-majority Arab countries to side with them, not with Iran. Right. And is, is Iran likely to do anything in the Golan Heights then? If 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 it was, I guess, um, if it's seen as a, as a kind of a nexus, like you're suggesting, and if this is seen as a provocative move against Syria, for example, uh, is Iran likely to react now that that uh, the relationship is, I guess, closer than ever? Well, Iran has the capacity to fund guerrilla wars. Iran cannot do anything at the state level. Iran mm. um, is not in that position uh, at, at any stage or at, at any uh, platform on the world. Um, they've been isolated. They are isolated. They have challenges at home, economy sanctions, um, so many other things. But they have the capacity to fund guerrilla organizations, as they have done in the past. They are still doing it. They've done it in Syria. They've done it in Yemen. They're, they've tried to do it in Bahrain. They've, uh, you know, um, Hezbollah, the, the, their support to Hezbollah and mm. other guerrilla groups. But then again, support is for Shia groups, not for any other guerrilla group, but for Shia groups. So Iran may continue to fund guerrilla fighters, and especially Hezbollah, but of course they are not in a position to do anything about it. Right, no, not the Golan Heights. Uh, and I, I guess from what you're saying is that, is that legally, uh, you know, there, there might be a case, but uh, I think we've seen uh, Ismail Saab that Israel has ignored legal sort of positions before. Sure. I mean, I mean, let's face it, uh, almost everything Israel has done since 1967 has been illegal. Mm. But what happens is you have a de facto presence of Israel and they they continue. Um, I mean, these things will add up eventually, but for how long do we have to wait? Obviously, none of us can can predict that. Mm. Um, look at what, what happened to the siege on Gaza. We're now nearly over a decade on that. The mm. West Bank is being sliced into small pieces and being taken over meter by meter on a daily basis. Jerusalem has gone uh, virtually, and now we have the Golan Heights. So, yes, in, on international law, Geneva Convention, it is illegal, but Israel c- continues to violate international law, UN resolution, Geneva Convention, and the world community seems to remain silent. Uh, but on the other side, is obviously the fact that they're adding more and more people will around the globe stand, start to wake up and say enough is enough, uh, mm. you know. Um, and we hope that it's sooner than later for peace in the region and for them as well, because if it goes, the balance swings the other side, then there will be a military conflict, which is no good for anybody. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I think the point Artis is always saying is, is that um, it is fair enough looking at others to sort of say, 
you know, the, the world world powers to sort of comment on this. If the the community, the Arab community or the Muslim community haven't said anything about it, uh, then, you know, what's the what's the likelihood that anybody else is going to do anything? And I guess what matters from what you're saying is, is the boots on the ground. And if the biggest boot, America, is behind you, uh, then law and anything else, uh, you know, probably doesn't prevail. Yeah, this is what I started right at the beginning, that, you know, even 100 years later on, it's the guy with the biggest gun will rule. Hmm. Uh, you know, the rest is obviously makes nice conversation about international law and so forth to make it sound civilized. Hmm. But when it doesn't suit them, they can do whatever they like. And that's exactly but I, I have, I have seen, seen an article in The Guardian which, which seems to indicate that this is setting a, uh, a legal precedence uh, which, which I think the, the, the report was talking about uh, likening this to the sorts of interpretation of uh, the rights of people in law, etc., which led to First World War uh, and Second World War, that, that um, you know, these, uh, you know... Sure, annexations. It's and, part of the annexation of Poland and uh, yeah. Czechoslovakia and so forth. Yeah, but this is, remember, it was Europe. When it happens here, hmm. the, the rule changes. Uh, you know, the, the the games of the rule change. This is happening in a so-called third world non-white countries. So it's, mm. there it's different. This is exactly what colonialism is all about, uh, that they can go and do things on other people, which they would not tolerate amongst themselves mm. you know, as, as the world powers. But what is also happening in the Middle East is we have, there's two ways of looking at it. We can look at the Shia-Sunni divide, yeah. but there's also another division that is occurring there. That is the pro-colonialist division and decolonial thoughts. So we have a group of states who ally with America and Israel, like Saudi Arabia, like the UAE, mm. uh, Egypt. And then we have the decolonial states like Turkey, um, Qatar to an extent because of the position they find themselves in, yeah. and Iran. So we have a Shia-Sunni mix there as well. Uh, and to a certain extent now with Pakistan, as well with uh, Imran Khan. Mm. So, so we have a new school of thought emerging within that region. And I think we have to be a little bit more nuanced and try and get away from our sectarian um, lens Mindset, design, yeah. uh, and, and try and also look at the, the world power orientation of how it's trying to manipulate the region. And, and there is a clear division that is slowly emerging. It's not there. It's a power we have to look at it, uh, I must uh, admit. But it is emerging, and we should encourage that. We should encourage the people who are trying to look to become independent, to decolonize not only territorially, but mentally as well. And I think that is extremely important. And, and you think that that's a step forward. And, and I guess what you're saying is, is that um, the 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 pro-colonialists or the I guess the status quo uh, supporters yeah. are, are, are opposing that. Absolutely, because they have a vested interest. I mean, let's look at Saudi Arabia itself. If it was on, it's very similar to uh, Israel in a sense that if it was unsupported by the West, its own people would topple the present regime. Uh, and they need the West to 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 be, to be what to be there and to be able to uh, carry out mass arrest of their own people, oppress them, have no democratic rights, oppress the women, and nothing happens. And then the, the West still keeps on selling them arms as if they're the best state in the Middle East. Mm. So I mean that that has got nothing to do with um, Shia Sunnism. It's more to do with political power and global geopolitical alliances. Mm. And I think we need to bring that out as well and, and get away from this sort of sectarian uh, angle. And also that will also show up Israel and it will also go away from this Muslim uh, Jewish issue to show that there is an alliance that is supporting Israel, not because they're Jewish, not because they like them in any sense, it's because they fit into this geopolitical uh, axis. Mm. Are, are there some of your final comments uh, 
on on this and how do you think it's going to play out in in the months and years to come well i think the, the us government has made it clear um and of course you know uh, once it is occupied it has been occupied since the 1967 war and now that the us have, uh, has accepted it you know the partners may not accept it in the coming days or in the coming decades but they would not oppose it either mm. that's how it has worked for israel all, all through the years i mean yes everyone condemns their occupation of uh, uh, many territories but nothing has happened and even if something comes to uh, you know if if other powers uh, bring it to the security council america has a veto vote over it so i mean any solution for these disputes in that region america has to be uh you know on the side of uh, with with the other countries uh to i mean whether it's it's for israel or whether it's for any other country in the world so i think without america's consent nothing's going to happen and uh i don't think that's going to happen soon because like i said uh, israel is america's uh, closest Close ally side. right No, thank you very much, Mohammed um, Atif Sav. It's a pleasure talking to you again, and uh, you always bring a refreshing view uh, on on world matters. Jazakallah khair. Salam alaikum. Right. Okay. So, uh, Ismail Sab, uh, just closing remarks from yourself in terms of how how you think uh, things should change. I guess um, how what what people should do. I guess I guess the listeners, etc., um, listening to the, to this news. I I think it's a very important thing what we witnessing in front of our eyes um and it is very important for the civil society everybody who's listening to this to at least even write an email to their MP mm. uh, say this kind of stuff is not acceptable uh, this is a repeat of colonialism and we cannot allow uh, our government to just remain silent uh, they should confront this not only should they uh, object to what Trump is doing and saying basically said if this carries on in Israel tries to annex it then they will take measures against Israel and i right. think that's something we should request uh, and i think it's very very important because this is a precedent that can carry on i mean you know okay. Israel more can ask for something else and carries on and we have to work on that right uh, ismail sahab thank you very much for your time i've run out of time completely jazakallah for your contribution and inshallah we'll speak uh, on other occasion assalamu alaikum Right listeners we come to the end of the show uh and we've got about 15 seconds to say goodbye to yourselves uh, inshallah until next week I'll be here as well next week if you've enjoyed this week tune in next week inshallah if you have any suggestions for topics that you want me to cover please do send us or whatsapp us on 0779481822 inshallah until next week assalamu alaikum Thank you for listening to our podcast we stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at Inspire FM Luton.